Okay, uh, so we're reading again uh, from Numbers 4 to uh, number 21, 4 to 9, and we at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, then he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made the bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, what happened? He left. Can we say that last phrase together? When he looked at the bronze serpent, he left. Let me give you a little bit of background, just in case you're not very familiar with the context. So the children of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt for almost 400 years. And God sent Moses to get the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, which he did. God struck Egypt with 10 plagues, 10 different times. God strikes Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh gave up. And the children of Israel went out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness. And it's supposed to be only a three days journey from the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. God said, I'm going to give you this land that overflows with milk and honey. But that three days journey ended up being 40 years old, 40 years long journey. And the reason is, we, as we're going to see in a little bit, the people that got out of the land of Egypt kept on rebelling against God and kept on complaining against the Lord. The Lord actually got sick of them and he said, none of the people who would leave the land of Egypt will actually end up in the promised land. I, you guys got to keep walking in the wilderness till the whole generation that got out of the land of Egypt will die in the desert. And then the kids, the children of this generation is the one who going to get into the promised land. And there was only two people who were in the land of Egypt who actually entered into the promised land. Can anybody here help me out? Joshua and Caleb, exactly. That's the only two that actually saw the whole thing. Even Moses himself, God got mad with him in Numbers 20, just a chapter before that, and he did not enter into the promised land himself. So the children of Israel, we read this story here. This is part of them. This is almost toward the, I think that's almost toward the end or the last part of that four years. And the people of Israel had been walking and walking and walking in absolute desert. So they got sick and tired of it. And they got cranky. They got impatient with God. And they start complaining. And they say to Moses, why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt? I, there's homework for you guys. Go back home and search that sentence. Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt? And find out how many times the children of Israel said it to God and to Moses. You'll be surprised. Like, why did you do that to us? We, you should have left us in Egypt. We hate that worthless food. And that's the manna that God has provided to them from heaven. It's, it's God's own provision. But I think they just ate it for so long, they didn't like it anymore. And they start complaining and murmuring against God. But God this time was not patient with them anymore. He sent what? Fiery serpents. And these fiery serpents start bidding the people and a lot of the people died. So they went back to God and said, oh, we're sorry, please forgive us. And Moses prayed to God. He's like, okay, God, the people are sorry. Please do something about it. So God said, well, here's the deal. If you want these people to be forgiven, you have to make a fiery serpent on the same model of these serpents that have been biting the people of copper or, or bronze and hang it on a pole and then anybody who looks at that serpent will live 
And the flip side of that is also true. If you're bitten and you don't look, then guess what? You're gonna die. Very familiar story. Uh, Jesus referenced that story himself. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. And that's why it is very familiar to uh, believers in the, in, in the church in the New Testament. But I want to highlight three points here that we can learn from that story. And we're going to dig deeper into how is that a type of the cross and Jesus dying for us on the cross to redeem us. The, the first point is we have to learn from this story that God's grace will come to an end. God's grace is not just open-ended. You can just, you know, use it whenever you want. There's a point in time when the grace of God is going to be done over and there will be no grace left. So the grace of God will come to an end. Number two, we're going to talk about how that bronze serpent is a type of the cross, of Christ crucified. Because again, we're talking about shadows of Golgotha. And finally, we want to highlight what is it that you and I should do, well, what is it that the children of Israel did to live in that time, and how is that a representation of what you and I need to do to take advantage of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Amen? So the first one is, the grace of God will come to an end. Let's just take a quick glance at the children of Israel and their, 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 their history. And again, I want you to go home and look for that phrase, why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt? You're going to see that the children of Israel complained and murmured and rebelled against God over and over and over again throughout their history. The first time we hear about them complaining is in, in Exodus chapter 5. That's like, they're still in the land of Egypt. God hasn't even done anything yet to strike Egypt with the plagues. And they're already complaining because, because when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let the people go, Pharaoh said, you know what, I'm going to make it harder. So now you have to get your own uh, straws or whatever to build. And the, the, the labor now became so harder for them. So they start complaining right away. And they went to Moses it's like, what have you done? Why are you trying to make it harder for us? So remember, that's in the land of Egypt. God hasn't even done anything yet, and they're already complaining. That's Exodus 5. Exodus 14, now they are at the Red Sea. They're still within the Egypt border, right? And Pharaoh comes after them, the Red Sea before them, Pharaoh behind them, and they somehow suddenly forgot all the ten plagues that God has just performed to show his might and power. And they start complaining and say, hey, why did you get us out of the land of Egypt? There is no graves in Egypt. You got us to die here in the desert. And they start complaining again. That's Exodus 14. Exodus 15, now they're just, God just split the Red Sea and they just see the hand of God and the mighty miracle. They cross over the Red Sea, they go to that place where the water is bitter there and they start complaining against God. It's like, there's no water here. Why did you get us out of the land of Egypt? We should have just died there. That's in Exodus 15. Then we move on to Exodus 16. Now the people are hungry. Again, God is, every time they complain, God provides for them miraculously, but they never learn the lesson. Exodus 16, we're hungry, there is no food, so God provides the manna for them that comes down from heaven every single day. Exodus 17, now the people are thirsty and they're complaining about there is no thirst, so God commands Moses to strike the rock and water comes forth out of the rock and satisfy the thirst of the people. You guys see that's almost every single chapter they complain. <laughs> 14, 15, I mean, they just got out of Egypt in, 14, in 13 or 14 or something like that, you know? And then since then, 14 is a complaint, 15 is a complaint, 16 is a complaint, 17 is a complaint. Every single chapter in, their, in, the, in the beginning of this story, we hear them complaining, rebelling, and murmuring against God. 
But throughout it all, so far, God has been patient with the children of Israel. He just lived, every time they complain, he just provide for their need. And that story starts changing a little bit in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 11, the people complain again. Now they want meat. And God does give them meat, but with the meat, he gives them punishment. The Bible says that while they're still eating the quail, that while it's still in their teeth, God starts punishing the people and wrath from God broke throughout the camp. That's Numbers 11. Numbers 14, now the people of Israel um, got to the land of the promise. They sent in the spies and 12 spies come back. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, good, let's do it. And 10 of them discouraging the people. So the people complained about God because it's too difficult to get in and fulfill the promises of God. So God commands them, okay, if you don't want to go in, just go back. So guess what? They start complaining about the idea of going back. And they say, well, we're not going to go back. We're going to go in. So they hire, uh, like, they form an army, find the leader, go in, and they get defeated. It's like, it's impossible to win. God says, go in. No, we can't. Okay, go out. No, we won't. So it's like, you can't win with them. That's in Numbers 14. Number 16 we see another complaint about Moses and about uh, his leadership. That's Korah now, one of the Levites, complaining about Moses and his leadership. And what does the Lord do? The earth opened its mouth and Korah and all his company are being swallowed by that earth because they have rebelled and complained against God and against Moses. What do the people of Israel do in response? They complain. They go the next day to Moses and say, Oh, you guys, Moses and Aaron, have killed the people of God. It's, it's as if Moses opened that earth himself. And they start complaining. And God fed up at this point, and a wrath comes from God. 14,700 people died because of the wrath of God at that point. I mean, God has just had it with the children of Israel at this point. Numbers 20, just right before Numbers 21 that we were just reading from, the people complain again because of the lack of water. So Moses, God said, go speak to the rock that just already gave you water. Moses goes there, but instead of speaking, he strikes the rock, and that's when God got, when God got mad with Moses and forbade him from entering the promised land. And now we're in Numbers 21. Guess what the people of Israel are doing? They're complaining again. Because they hate the food and they said, we just hate that food. But this time, unlike the first five times when God was patient with the children of Israel, this time he got no patient with them no more. They sent fiery serpents and the serpents start biting the people and people start dying. What does that teach us? That teaches us that even though God carries and he doesn't want to punish people who sin against us, even though he's being patient, the fact that God is patient doesn't mean that he will never punish sin. You understand that? That's very important. The fact that God is being patient with you doesn't mean that he's never going to punish your sin. God is going to punish him. He's just being patient because he doesn't want people to die. But if people insist on rejecting the love of God and his grace so they can turn back and repent, if they keep on insisting, saying no to the grace of God, that they will come when the grace of God will be shut off and there will be no grace left for anyone. Amen? Let me just show you a couple of examples in, from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 15, 6 to 7. Look what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, 
you have forsaken me. He's speaking to the children of Israel. He's saying, you have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. And this next five words is one of the scariest five words, phrases you can ever read in the Bible. Look what God says here. I am weary of relenting. I'm sick and tired, God says. I am sick and tired for keep not punishing you. Every time I say I'm going to punish you, my, my heart and my compassion goes out for you. And I decide not to do it. And I relent from the wrath that I'm about to do on you. But guess what? I'm just sick and tired of not punishing you for your sins. I am weary of Relenting. So what are you going to do, God? I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will be brave them from the children. And guess what? Look at this. I will destroy not that people, my people. God say, even though you are my people, the time has come when I'm not going to be forgiving anymore. I'm not going to be gracious anymore. I'm not going to be merciful anymore. And all what is left for you is just my judgment because you kept on insisting, saying no to me. I am weary of relenting. Let's look at another example. Hosea 1.6. Now, if you remember this story, Hosea was one of the prophets in the Old Testament that God has commanded to go marry a prostitute, which he did, because that was a picture of how God was holy, uh, associated himself with Israel, which is an adulterous nation. But then God, Hosea and that prostitute had three kids. One of the kids, God gave him all the three names. Now one of the kids, a girl, was called Lorhama. That's in, in Hosea 1.6. And she conceived, the wife, the prostitute, conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said to him, call her name what? Lorhama. What does that word mean? Right here. I will no longer have mercy. I will no longer have mercy. What does that imply? That he had mercy for so long, right? He had mercy for so long, but God came to the point and said, guess what? It ain't going to happen no more. I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, and I will, how much? Utterly take them away. God's grace is not an open-ended invitation. The fact that God is being patient with your sin doesn't mean that he's okay with it. It doesn't mean that he's never going to punish it. Amen? Paul told us something like that in the book of Romans chapter 2. He said that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The only reason God is being kind and patient and merciful, he wants you to repent. But the flip side of that, Paul says, but because of your heartless of heart and your stubbornness, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the manifestation of the righteous judgment of God. Amen? God is being patient, but if you keep insisting on saying no to the grace of God, the day will come when grace will be out of the picture and all that is left is the judgment and the wrath of a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Amen. Grace will come to an end. The children of Israel, God extended grace over and over and over again, but this time he's like, no more grace. You rebel, you get that fiery serpent, they get to bit you and you're going to die because grace is out of the window at this point. Amen? But number two, we want to look at how that bronze serpent is a picture of the cross, a picture of Jesus. 
let me just highlight a quick point, a couple of quick points here to you guys first. Verse 7. Once the people start dying, verse 7 tells us that the people went back to Moses and said, We have sinned against God and against you. Please forgive us, right? They repented of the sins that they have done. And apparently they were pretty sincere because God took them up to that and provided the way for them, right? But I want you to notice this. Even though they repented of their sins, the repentance was not sufficient. Right? Because when they repented, God didn't say, Oh, okay, you guys are sorry. Okay, I see that you mean it. I see that you're sincere. Therefore, let me lift that serpent out of you. Did God do that? No. Because the repentance is not sufficient. When I go out and you, talk, when you go out and tell people about Jesus, it's like, you know, uh, are you a good person or a bad person? Oh, I'm a good person. Well, how about all the bad things you have done? Well, I, I apologize. I ask God to forgive me. And, you know, he's, he's merciful. He's gracious. He'll forgive me. No, it doesn't work this way. When the children of Israel repented, God said, they told God, God, we're sorry that we have broken your law. What did God say? I am sorry too. There is nothing I can do for you. You guys see that? Even though they wanted to repent, repentance is not sufficient in itself for you and I to, to know and be forgiven before a holy and a righteous God. Let me emphasize that again and again. Because every single religion in the world calls out on repentance. We agree with pretty much every religion in the world. Muslims tell you, you need to repent if you sin. Hindus tell you, you need to repent if you sin. Buddhists tell you, you need to repent if you sin. Atheists tell you, if you do something wrong, try not to do it again and try to correct it. Every single man-made religion tells you, you need to repent. Satan has no problem convincing people that they need to repent from their sins. Amen? The only problem is repentance is not sufficient in itself to make us right before the holy and the righteous God. Because we have broken the law of God and the price needs to be paid. You go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. God will reply, I am sorry too. Somebody needs to pay for this. And if it's not me, it's going to be you. I don't care how sorry you really are for it. Amen? It's only because Jesus, listen, it's only because in our story the serpent was lifted up in the pool. That is only when the repentance actually meant something and stopped working for them, right? And, you guys follow me? And it's only because Jesus died on the cross and paid the price of our sins. It's only because of that that if you and I repent and turn around and come to God, God is actually willing and able to accept our repentance. Amen? Our repentance is accepted only based on the foundation that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, your repentance and my repentance is worth absolutely nothing. Even though we really mean it. Amen? Now, the people repented and God said, Okay, I'm going to provide a way for you to be made right with me. And that way that God provided back then is a, is a snake, a serpent lifted up on a pillar. And because of that snake lifted up on the pool or a pillar, that's when the wrath of God was actually able to overcome, pass over the people and they can have life. And in the same manner, just as in the Old Testament, God provided that serpent for the people to escape his judgment. For all humanity, God has provided his son on the cross so that you and I can escape his judgment and his wrath. Amen? This is not my idea. This is Jesus' idea. Amen? Where we get that from? John 3, 14 to 16. Now, John, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's a teacher of the law. So he's pretty familiar with that story in the Old Testament. Amen? 
And Jesus is using something that Nicodemus would be familiar with, and he says in verse 14 and 16, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in him, in who? In the Son of Man, amen? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. And to elaborate on that, Jesus quoted John 3.16 that we all know for, right? John 3.16 starts with the word for, right? That means it's actually an elaboration, an explanation of what Jesus was just saying before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. Amen? So in an essence, Jesus was saying, just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up to provide life for those who are dead, so I must be lifted up also on the cross to provide life for those who are dead. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this serpent is a picture of me dying on the cross. So how is it possible? Let's, let's look into the similarities here between that serpent and Christ. Number one, the serpent was in the light. The, number one is the likeness of sin. What do we mean by that? What was the cause of death for the children of Israel in that story in Numbers 9, chapter 19? The serpent. It is the serpent when it bits the person that's what causes them to die, right? Yeah. And what is the cause of death for you and me before a holy and a righteous God? It is sin. So Jesus came. That serpent was representing Christ because that serpent was lifted up and it was a representation of the very reason of death. And Jesus, when he was hanged on the cross, he was a representation of sin. Your sin and my sin. He was in the very likeness of the very reason that makes you and I dead or dying before a holy and righteous God. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, the father made the son, who knew, knew no sin to become what? Sin. A sin for us. Yeah. It can be a sin offering like the ones we talked about before. But Jesus on the cross was the, the embodiment of, of the sins that humans have committed throughout history. And this is how God punished Jesus on the cross as if he was punishing sin that people have committed. Amen? So Jesus on the cross was made sin for us just as that serpent was a representation of the very reason of that in, in Numbers chapter 19. Amen? Amen. But there is another, there's a difference between the bronze serpent and the real serpent. What is it? There's no poison in the one that is made of copper, right? It's just the poison free. And Jesus was the exact same way. Yes, he was made sin just like that serpent on, on, on lifted up. But Jesus was without sin. He was sinless. That verse that we just read right here in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew what? No sin. To become what? Sin. Jesus, like that serpent, had no poison in him. He, was, he knew no sin. Yet he became, just like, like that serpent, a sin. The very reason of death for you and me on the cross. And that's how he bore our judgment. Amen? Yes. But number three serpent or Christ on the cross was the bearer of the curse in Genesis 3:14, we read this so the Lord God spoke to the serpent that just enticed Eve and Adam to eat from that uh, from the fruit and he said because you have done this you are what cursed more than all the cattle so the serpent in the scripture is always a bearer of a curse 
And isn't that precisely what Jesus has become for us on the cross? Yes. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. That we might have the blessings of God. Amen? So that, that serpent is represents Christ because that serpent is the reason of death. And Jesus became sin, which is the reason of death between us and God. That bronze serpent was without poison. Jesus was without sin. That serpent is a bearer of curse. And Jesus became cursed for us on the cross. But number four, that serpent was lifted up. Jesus actually precisely drew that parallel in John 3, 14 to 16. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so this is one story, the parallel story is this, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Amen? So just as that serpent was lifted up, Jesus was also lifted up. Generally speaking, in the Bible, when we say Jesus is lifted up, we're actually talking about his exaltation after he died and rose again from the dead. We're talking about him being lifted up um, to the right hand of God. However, in the book of John, the, the evangelist John used this description lifted up a couple of times, not to talk about Jesus' exaltation, but to talk about him being lifted up on a cross for you and me. Amen? Yeah. In John 5, actually... That story right here in, in John 3, 14, when Jesus says, I must be lifted up, he's not talking about his exaltation, right? He's talking about his cross. So Jesus described him dying on the cross as being lifted up on a, on a cross, on a pole. And then John said, Jesus said as well, John 8, 28, then Jesus said to them, then when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. He's not talking about saying, you lift me up. He's not saying the Father lift me up. He said, you lift me up. Where did the people lift Christ up? On the cross. Amen. He said, when you lift me up on the cross, then you will know that I am He and I do nothing of myself. John 12, 32 to 33. And I, that is Jesus, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Okay, which one is he talking about here? Talking about the cross or about exaltation? John tells us, so we don't have to think about it. Verse 33. He said this signifying what? What death he might die. So he's definitely talking about the cross. So that just as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so Jesus was also lifted up on Mount Calvary so he can provide life for those who are dead. Amen? But number five in terms of the similarity is this. That serpent in the Old Testament provided the one and only way for people to have life. Where do we get that from? John 3.14. That verse that Jesus just spoke. He said, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so should the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? Yes. Must or should? Yes. Does it say, even so probably the Son of Man should be lifted up. Right? No, it's a must. It's a have to. There's no way around this. There's no question that Jesus must be lifted up on the cross. Why is it a must? Why is it a necessity? Because there's no other way for sinful human beings to be reconciled with a holy and righteous God except through Christ dying on the cross. Amen? Amen. Just like in that story in the book of Numbers, the people truly repented and they truly sorry for their sins. And God said, well, I'm glad you're sorry, but that still doesn't cut it for me. You want to be forgiven? You want to have life? You have to look unto that serpent that is being lifted up in the wilderness. So in the same manner, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so he can provide the one and only way
for you and me to be reconciled before a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Amen. Matthew 28, 39. Now Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's saying, um, he's going, um, the, the Bible says, and going a little further, he uh, fell on his face and he prayed to God and he said, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying if it's at all possible that the human race can ever be reconciled with you apart from the cross, please let it be because I don't want to go to the cross picturing how much hard it's going to be for him. Amen? Amen? That's the prayer. Now what has happened after that? Did Jesus actually went to the cross or no? What does that tell us? It tells us that it is impossible that any human being ever can be made right with God except through the cross. Amen? It's the only way. It is a must. It's a necessity. There is no other way that you and I can be made right with God except through the cross of Jesus. Amen? Yes. Luke 24, 25 to 26. Now he's talking to the two disciples um, and he's saying to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, uh, to believe all that is in the prophets, uh, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not what? Necessary. necessary that Christ should suffer for these things. Why is it necessary? It's not optional. It is necessary. It's a must. It's a, it has to be done. The cross must happen because it's the only way for mankind and, and holy God to be ever reconciled together. Amen? Amen. The only way. There's no other way around it. If you're following the news in the last week or two, how ISIS is just keep on threatening those who worship the cross. The cross just pissed Satan off. I tell you that much. Amen. Every time Satan is just so mad at the cross, he's so mad at what Jesus has done on the cross. He used every single tool in his hand to just like spread venom against the cross of Christ. Amen. Yeah. Because that's the one way when mankind can be reconciled with God. And that's the one way when Satan was defeated once and for all in the cross of Christ. Amen? So the serpent is a picture of Jesus that died for us, who died for us on the cross so we can have life. Amen? Now, let's look at man's role. What do you and I have to do? Let's look at that story and see what does that mean to you and me. If you go back with me to verse 8. Let's read that verse together. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it in a pole, that it shall be that... Let's read this together. That what? Let's read it together. It shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. How many ones God said? Everyone. Everyone. When you go out, when I go out to witness sometimes, I ask people, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven or hell when you die? Some people answer me, it's like, you know what, it's up to God. I don't, I don't know, it's up to God if you want me to go to heaven or hell. But the Bible doesn't say, actually, that it's up to God, believe it or not. Amen? I just answer them, I take them right away to John 3, 16, assuming they know it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For who? For the world. Right? He loved the whole world. He gave Jesus for the whole world. The rest of that verse says that whosoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. So 
it's, it's up to who at this point? Is it up to God or is it up to you? It's up to you. If you want to believe, you have eternal life. If you don't want to believe, you're not going to have eternal life. So eternal life is not really up to God. And I'm not saying that, I say that very respectfully, but it's not really up to God. God has provided the way for all the human race to be made right with Him when Jesus died on the cross. Amen? Now it's up to you if you want to be made right with God or not. Jesus said that whoever believes, whoever, it doesn't matter who you are, whoever believes shall have eternal life, right? Yes. What did Peter say? He said that the will of God, that none, none, zero, should perish, but that all should have eternal life. That's what Peter said in his epistle. Amen? Yes. So Jesus said it, Peter said it, how about Paul? Paul said it in Romans chapter 3, he said that God has publicly displayed Christ as a propitiation for sin for the whole world. That's in Romans chapter 3. And John said it, and that's the major disciples that follow Jesus, amen? John said, that, John said that Jesus is not a propitiation just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole World. world. It's over and over and over again in the scripture that it is the will of God that none should perish and the blood of Jesus is enough to cover every sin, every single human being has ever committed. Amen? And that doing death of Christ is enough to cover every single sinner regardless of your background, if you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or an atheist or a Baptist, it doesn't matter. The blood of Jesus is enough to make you right with God. Amen? And just like in that story, when everyone who is bitten has a chance of life, if he just look at that serpent lifted up in the wilderness, so nowadays every single soul in the 7 billion people in this world has a chance of life if they just look at Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's not a big amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Everyone who's bitten has a life, has a chance of life, if you just look at that serpent. So let's, let's dig deeper into that word, look. What does it mean? Because that's a big word and very important, right? It's a matter of life and death to the children of yes. Israel in that situation. It's like, so this is very, very important. If you look into the Hebrew, you'll see that actually there is a change in the word that God used. Like, for example, let's go back. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Let's read verse 8 and 9 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, and he said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, that it shall be that anyone who is bitten when he looks. That word in Hebrew is ra'ah, which to see, literally to, to see something. Shall live. And then verse 9. So Moses made the bronze serpent, and he put it in a pole. And so it was that everyone has, uh, if the serpent has bitten everyone, when he looked at, that Hebrew word here is nabat. It's, it's a slightly different word. They're, they're inter interchangeable. It's not like the end of the world. But the word Nabat mainly, mainly associated with pay a close attention to. Focus. Consider this. You know, it includes the apprehension. You're like you're trying to understand. You're trying to pay a very close attention to something. It's not just glancing at it. You really look at it with, with intentionality. Amen? Yeah. So that's the change of the words here. And and Remember, if you go back to the parallelism between, in John 3, 14 to 15, let's, let's look at it again. Jesus said that just as, I want you to notice the parallelism here, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so as the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? And then he said, Jesus said after that, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life, okay? But what happened 
actually in the Old Testament, people didn't need to believe per se. I mean, they had to believe in a way, but they actually needed to look. So in a way, if the parallelism is to continue, which I believe the very intentions of Christ, Jesus says, the serpent was lifted, the serpent was lifted up, so I am lifted up. Just as the serpent provided life, I provided life. The serpent provided that by looking at it. I will provide that by believing in me. So looking and believing in that parallelism is actually like it's synonymous to each other in Jesus' intentions, which I believe is to be true. Amen? So the word looking here has depth to it. It has more meaning to it. It's actually Jesus saying that looking here means believing. And he actually plainly associated these two words together in, in, in John 6, 40. Look at this verse. For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who what? Looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So looking and believing here, they're very like close to each other. So looking here is just, it has deeper meaning than just glancing at something. Amen? So what does it mean? Let's look at it. Let's think about the children of Israel in that situation. And what this look represented to them. Remember, if you're a, a child of Israel or an Israelite at that time, you're bitten by a serpent. And you're just waiting for your death. Right? And you just pretty much feel so sorry that you complained. You complained about against God and against Moses, and here you are being bitten by a fiery serpent. You feel the, 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 the venom just running through your body, the burning sensation maybe, and you know that at any second you will drop dead, right? Yeah. And then you hear some good news, that God has commanded Moses to provide the way for you to be saved. And that he hang up a serpent in a pool in the middle of the camp. And all what you have to do is just to look. And if you look, you will live, right? Imagine yourself being that person. So that look, when that person actually look at that serpent, what is he saying? He's saying so many things. He's saying, number one, I screwed it up, right? He said, I messed it up big time. I complained against God. I complained against Moses. And my situation is so bad. I am about to die. And not only that, I am so helpless. There's absolutely nothing I can do that can make me right with God. I told God I'm sorry. And that didn't cut it with him. Amen? So that, that look represents, you know what? There is nothing I can do in myself to get myself out of that death situation that I have brought upon myself. Amen? But it also represents trust or believing because, you know, he said, well, my method didn't work. I have nothing to do, so maybe I just need to trust the way that God has provided. Maybe I need really to look at that serpent because God said that if I look at it, I shall live. Amen? So that look in a way, it represents that he's not look, he's looking outside of himself and trusting in the provision that God has provided for him through that serpent. Amen? And when he looked that look of faith, trusting God that his way will work because my way has failed miserably, that's when that person will live. Amen? Isn't that what you and I need to do to be saved? You know, this takes that same thing. Jesus said, if you believe, what does that mean? That means you know that you have sinned against the holy and the righteous God. And just like...
like in the children of Israel when they feel the venom of the serpents running through their bodies and there is no way for them to have life and they know that it's just a matter of time for them to die. So if you believe in the same way and you know that you have been sinned against God and the venom of that fiery serpent of sin is running through you and there is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, all what you have to do is just look out of yourself and look on the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and say, my good deeds can do nothing for me but the blood of Jesus is good enough and I trust in the way that God has provided yes. to make me right with him. Amen? Yeah. And if you have that faith, all what you need to do is just come to God and say, God, here I am. I am dying and there is nothing I can do about it but today I trust in the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus that took my judgment and my wrath on the cross. Amen? Yes. I promise you if you do that today, you're going to leave this place a brand new person because the same God who gave life to the dead through that serpent is still alive and well today and he will give you life today if you just trust Christ and him alone for the salvation of your soul. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't we pray? Amen. Let's pray.